Where do we fit in God's story? How might we live God's story in our lives? Friends, I'm really incredibly excited to share that we are beginning something new this morning, a worship series intended to help us trace the shape of Scripture as we find it told in the pages of our Bibles running from cover to cover, knowing that encountering the fullness of God's story is sure to renew and restore us as a people committed to following God today. And so we're diving headfirst in, and over the course of the next year, we're going to be making our way through the whole Bible, the whole whole year through the whole Bible, fall to spring, though we're not going to hit every story along the way, but we're going to start in Genesis, and then we're going to make our way to Jesus' birth in time for Christmas, and then we're going to continue on through one of the Gospels uh, on into the spring. It's going to be an incredible opportunity, I think, to experience the whole witness of Scripture in one continuous flow. For those who are, uh, like to geek out about churchy things, uh, I'll tell, let you know that what we're doing, what we're following is what's called the narrative lectionary. A lectionary is a set of readings for the church each week throughout the year that runs through a three-year cycle so that you hit most of the uh, Bible throughout that three-year period. The traditional lectionary gives you a whole bunch of readings every Sunday throughout the year. The narrative lectionary is a play off of that that goes in this continuous motion from beginning to end. And so I'm very excited about it, and we want to explore it even more than we can just in worship alone. So each week we're going to have a study guide available that can help us go more in depth. And so this week's is actually available out in the narthex there on the table with the name tags. Um, It's just a few pages long, has some uh, discussion questions, some commentary on the scripture. And so I encourage you to pick one up and see how it might be helpful for your personal study or in conversation with one another. There is even a daily reading guide on the back for those who might be interested in reading a bit more to get an even more full picture of the scriptural story over the coming year. And that guide is what we're going to be using at that weekly Bible study, which is going to take a deeper look at these scriptures. Um, And that's the one that's going to meet on Zoom on Monday nights at 7 p.m. And I hope you'll consider attending uh, starting next Monday, so not tomorrow, but a week from tomorrow or any week that they're meeting. Um, And if you're interested, again, in an in-person option, let me know, and we'll see if we have enough people to make that happen as well. And so I'm excited for what this is going to do, where it's going to take us, what might happen in us as we explore this way. And we're going to start all of that next week. Because as you heard just a moment ago, this week's scripture is not from Genesis. It's not from the very beginning of the Bible. We're getting a bit of an introduction as we start from the New Testament, from the Gospel of Luke. It's a preparation for the weeks to come As in this scripture, we have a sort of invitation to consider what we bring to the scriptures when we read them, about how to be honest about what we're looking for when we encounter the living word of God, and to hear how God might be inviting us to pour our whole selves into this heavenly story lived out on earth. And so that's where we're beginning today, as an introduction to the long story that is to come. Let us pray. Almighty God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable unto you, our rock and our redeemer. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. I spent more time than you might imagine in my childhood wondering if I would be able to survive if one day I accidentally found myself stranded in the wilderness somewhere. Would I be able to make a shelter? Would I be able to find something to eat? It's a strange sort of question, but it came 
from a book called Hatchet. It was a sort of phenomenon with kids my age growing up, a story of a boy who got stranded in the Canadian wilderness after a plane crash with nothing but what he had on his person and a hatchet that he happened to have strapped to his belt. And he struggled but eventually prevailed against the challenges of nature. It wasn't the first book of its type. It actually stands in a long tradition of wilderness survival novels. Before Hatchet, there was My Side of the Mountain, a couple of decades earlier, and then before that, The Swiss Family Robinson. Because there is, it seems, something appealing about that classic struggle against the unyielding forces of nature. Now, the author of Hatchet died last year, and when I read an obituary, I was stopped by a surprising line where Gary Paulson, the author of this book, was described as the author of Hatchet. The book, it said, that taught children everywhere how to survive in the woods with nothing but a hatchet, which I think is overstating things just a bit, because I am sorry to say that I learned no such thing. I read the book several times over. I knew the plot by heart, but even so, if you had abandoned me in the wilderness as a child or still today, I don't know that I would make it. It was a novel, not a how-to instruction manual. I mean, that that would be a survival guide, of which I had one or two, and I tried to read, but they were boring, and so I never finished them. They're just like lists of plants that you could eat and ways to trap animals. No fun there. I liked the novels better, because the survival novel, not a how-to guide, is a story, a human story, about being thrown into the deep end and figuring out how to swim, about resilience after failure and courage in uncertainty about taking stock of everything that you have and figuring out how to put it to use. A story that seems to touch on something beyond just surviving, even when surviving seems like the most impossible thing to imagine. A story that somehow still got the reader to think about what we might be living for. And it is not unlike the Bible in that way. The Bible isn't a very helpful manual for explaining exactly what to do or not to do in any given situation. There are portions of it that seem to lean that way, but even then, in those sections, the best way to understand them is to read them as a part of the larger whole, to learn their place in the movement of Scripture, the flowing story that carries throughout the moral implications that Scripture occasionally lays out provide, uh, they depend on and carry the story of Scripture. A story which is a human story all the way throughout, but a human story with God forever shining in and making appearances. And so it can feel disjointed at time as it cycles through genealogies and impossible-to-believe stories and then poetry and bits of wisdom thrown in and then the Gospels and all of the letters of the New Testament. But when it all comes together, it's there. It's a story. It's a long story about what it is to be human in God's world. A story that teaches us about resilience after failure, which we might call grace, about courage in uncertainty, which might be the hope of Christ, about taking stock of everything we have and figuring out how to put it to use, pushing us to see what we might be living for. And it's a story that sometimes challenges the story that we are already living, one that pushes us to live differently, to write a new story in which we live for God. This, I think, is what we find in Scripture all the way along, but it shines particularly through in this one scripture today, a lesson and an example of what happens when we encounter the living word of God. Teacher, 
a busy man, or said a man from a busy crowd in the scripture, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Sometimes we come to the word of God with a demand, an expectation of what we will surely find, of what God will give us, what God will do for us. We know what we want, and we think that God will come through. God, give us what is mine. God, tell me how to get what I deserve. God, force fairness into this world of your creation. Tell me how to get what I'm sure I need, what I want, O God. But the word of God does not always provide what we expect or what we want. Often, it sweeps away what we have come looking for and gives us something different altogether. And so Jesus said to the man, who appointed me as judge or referee between you and your brother? And he turns back to the crowd and he teaches with a parable. There is a man, a rich man, with a field, a field that has had an exceptionally good crop that year. And this is what we know about the man. He's notably not a jerk or unkind or anything else. He is perhaps an incredibly decent person, a man making a living in a normal and everyday sort of way. He has a field. He planted something. It grew, and it just happened that that year it was a bountiful harvest. We will come to learn that he is also a fool, but it's a little bit hard to discern and understand why that might be so. What was the foolishness of this man? He has done everything right so far as we can tell, planted a field, harvested it, and now he has a bountiful harvest, and he does an incredibly smart thing with it. If he's had a good harvest, then probably his neighbors have had a good harvest as well. They share the same weather, the same sun, the same rain. The bugs must not have been bad that year. And so if he had a lot, then everyone else had a lot, and that was about to flood the market. So what was he going to do? Sell it? No. No, the wise business decision would be to hold on to it. Maybe he would sell it next year. Maybe he would live off of it for the coming decade or two or three. All wise decisions by any business standards. And so he chooses to build more barns, and his fate is sealed. In most of the parables that Jesus tells, the main character has some sort of turning point in the middle, some sort of reckoning where they look at what they have and who they are and what they're doing, and they change their mind and they change their ways. That's what happens with the prodigal son, that famous parable Young man runs away from home with all of the riches that he could ever wish for from his father's inheritance, and then he squanders it all and says, what have I done? And he returns home. There is a turning point. This man has the moment where a turning point could happen. He has the opportunity. He even begins to ask the right question. He has a bountiful harvest, and he says, what will I do? But then He narrows the question from there. What will I do? Where will I put everything that I now own? And his fate is sealed, and he puts it in barns. And then his life is called home that day. And God says, fool, who will now have all of what you had? He is, it seems, a fool. Why? It could be any number of things, but perhaps it is because this 
is a story with only one character. And how often is that ever truly the case? If you read the parable throughout, there's an awful lot of first-person pronouns. I, me, mine, what shall I do with my bountiful harvest? I will put it in barns. What a great idea, self. This is what I shall do. Was there no one else involved? No one else harvesting this bountiful crop? No one else helping build the barns? No one in the town or the village where he lived that was hungry that day? No one that could have been blessed by what he had? Was there no one else in the world? It would seem in this man's mind, perhaps not. It was just him and what he had. And so when he died, perhaps God was right to ask, who now shall have what you once had? Aren't there other people there? His vision is so narrow, it seems, that not only is there no one else, but God has no place in this story until God bursts through and God makes God's self known. This man never asks, what would God have me do with this? What is the right thing to do with what I now have? Perhaps he believes in God. Perhaps he has heard the stories of scriptures, believes that God exists and God has something to say, but when it comes down to it, when he has a decision to make, God doesn't even play into the equation. He is a functional atheist. For whatever else he might believe, when he has a decision to make, God isn't anywhere to be found. Perhaps God should have been. Perhaps he should have thought about other people. Perhaps he should have considered what it would have felt like were he to die that day. And there's maybe a lesson to be learned there to ask, what would you think of your life today looking back from the grave? Perhaps there's a lesson about spending more time with family, about not working so hard, about sharing and giving because it'll make us feel better at the end. That is a good lesson, a good sermon perhaps as well. But there's something richer and deeper in the text for us here. For as Jesus continues on, he has moved from the one man to the crowd and now to his disciples. And to his disciples, he's going to go deeper and give a richer understanding of what there is to be found here. Because it's not just that you shouldn't build barns, he says, it's that you should be rich towards God. Rich towards God, which sounds great, but is mostly undefined in this scripture. And Jesus just goes on and sort of talks about birds and flowers and grass. He just chunks his disciples into the wilderness and says, look at everything around you. Nothing else seems to work so hard for the things that they need in life. All of the people scurrying about the face of this earth fret so much about what they're going to eat and where. And the rest of the world, the rest of the wilderness of the natural things of God's creation have found a comfort in resting in the hand of God. As so much of the world is living out a story of scarcity, of needing to strive and hold on to and cling to, the natural world tells a story of grace and love and care in God. Jesus says God is caring for us, loving us, has sorted all this out. There's no need to worry about these things. But don't just stop there. God wants us to reach for something bigger. Do not spend your time worrying about this because there is more to be done with a life. 
There is more to be had, more to reach for. If God loves you and if God cares for you, what shall you now do? What should we now do? How do we live that out in the world? How do we reach for the kingdom of God? It would seem that we might be squandering what God has given us if we just look to have enough. But we are living into what God would have us do if we look at the world around us, the people out there, and think, how can we help? How can we care for those around us? How can we love this world as God has loved it? How do we mend it where it is breaking? Sew it back together into one seamless whole. How do we make sure that we are living in grace and peace and love as we were always intended to be? This is the question that lingers without any good answer because it's not much of a how-to guide, just an invitation to consider what are we doing with our lives and with all we have? Can we throw ourselves feet first in the wilderness of this world to live a story of love and grace and hope? Can we hear the questions that God is asking us about what we will do with what we have and respond in a faithful way? Look at the world around us and think, yes, this is what I can do here, today, now. This is what I can do tomorrow and the next day. This is how I can employ myself and all that I have in the story that God has forever been writing in this place. Jesus says to the rich man with the barns who thinks no further than himself, fool, who now will have what you have saved for yourself? And so the question lingers over this text and over the whole witness of Scripture. What is it that we shall do if we are loved by God, cared for by God, if we trust that God holds us, what are we free now to do? How are we free now to live the story of God? May that question forever ring for us and for all the people of the world until the kingdom we are reaching for comes on earth. Thanks be to God. Amen. Friends, I invite us to continue in worship as we sing together our next